If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The history of fabric is stitched into our story as a species. Victoria Finlay has travelled the world to learn more about the history of material, staying with Pacific Island tribes who make a cloth that helps save their forests and visiting tweed makers in Scotland. Rhiannon Davis spoke with her to find out more. Why did you decide to write this book? There's a story that I tell in the beginning of the book which I'll just tell very briefly now. It was, I was, I was in Russia, in Moscow. It was one year after the, after communism fell and there was an extraordinary demonstration in the square of people who'd been working. They'd been in the military, but they'd been working, believing that they would have pensions and everything. And all around me, I was there as a journalist, all around me, there were people, there were people who who didn't have enough to eat. Um, Nothing was was working. It was 1991. And I just focused in my my camera on the... I found myself focusing on the clothes that they were wearing. And I saw how they would been darned and how, how in a way, the fabrics symbolised what had been happening. So that's one reason. My first book was about colour. My second book was about jewels. In a way, fabric is quite small, sometimes lovely, quite interesting and quite world-ranging things. But I think that one of the reasons was I was at the Edinburgh Science Fair and um, giving a talk, and it's a brilliant science fair. And there was another talk that I saw, and there was, if you imagine, there was a professor there, and he started with a magic trick. So he had a cauldron in front of him, and in that cauldron was some transparent substance, which he didn't say what it was, obviously something chemical. And he asked his assistant to take three pieces of white textile, white cloth, and put them into this cauldron. And while he was talking, we were all very aware that something was happening in this cauldron and that at the end of the talk, we would be invited to have a look. And the time came and we were all completely agog. And trusty assistant took out from this one cauldron one piece of fabric which was blue one which was yellow and one which was red obviously there had been a combination of chemicals in that which had reacted with three different types of fiber but suddenly i realized that fiber was not just two dimensional fiber fabrics were different in their heart and i think it 
it was at that point that I thought, oh, I'd like to know more about that. Before we come on to clothes in more detail, there's one fabric that I wanted to ask you about in particular, and it's the fabric that you use to open the book, and it's called bark cloth. For any of our listeners who aren't aware of what bark cloth is, can you tell us a bit about what it is and how it's made? I wasn't very aware of bark cloth, and I was a social anthropology student. I'd seen it. I'd seen it in museums, um, and I'd seen it... Yeah, I'd seen it in museums, I'd seen it in books, but I didn't know what it was. I thought it was called bark cloth because it was made of bark. And it's not really. It's made of the inner bark, which is something completely different. The outer bark is dead and the inner bark is alive. It's where the life goes into a tree. Um, Bark cloth, there are a few trees that have been made into bark cloth in the Pacific, largely, and also in China and Southeast Asia also, and in Africa. Um, there are a few trees. One is a fig tree. Uh, but one, the one that is most important to cultures throughout the Pacific is the paper mulberry. And um, I have some here. And obviously, this is a podcast, so nobody can see it. So I'm going to describe it. And you can hear it a little bit. It's long. The thing that you'll notice is that it's long. What I have in front of me is what would have been used in Papua New Guinea as a loincloth. And so it's about the width of a ruler, about about um, 35 centimetres, I'm going to guess. And it's in four sections. And if I were to stand up, then I guess it would come up to above my waist. And... It was made, this one was made in Papua New Guinea by a tribe called the Mycin. And the Mycin live in Collingwood Bay on the coast. And they're very, very proud of their trees. They call them Wuusi trees, but it's made into a cloth that they call tapa. Most days, they wear stuff like we're wearing now. They wear um, blouses, they wear skirts, they wear um, jeans. They wear T-shirts. But on ritual occasions, and they like ritual occasions. We all like ritual occasions. I mean, (laughs) we like meeting up. We like having feasts and parties. And we also like having weddings, and we also acknowledge having funerals. And at these ceremonies, the mycin wear bark cloth. And they paint it. It's This one is, it's a kind of creamish colour that is what it came from the tree. It, it. I'm going to describe how they make it first, very quickly. They grow trees in their gardens, which are about seven kilometres away from their village. They cut them at the bottom and they cut them where they're about to become into into branches. So they've got a long, thin um, tube of a trunk. Then they slice down and they come up with something about the length of a finger, and then they beat it, and they beat it, and they beat it. And in the mornings in the Mycin village, you first of all, you hear sweeping. At about four o'clock in the morning, the women are sweeping. And then when they finished with that, some of them go off to make the breakfast, and some of them start to beat the bark cloth. And they, they beat it on a, on a wooden trunk, so you hear this bang, bang, bang. And that is the music of the Mycin village still. Still, when I visited them in 2018, that was what the women did in their spare time. And in the afternoons, they would 
chew their betel nut, which is a mild intoxicant, and they would paint. And they would paint designs in black paint first and then in red. And the reason that it's important, it, this, this bark cloth is still important. It's not just two-dimensional stuff. This is really important because this is how the mycin didn't have war. They would make bark cloth. They would trade up the up the bay with their neighbours who made pots. One bark cloth, one pot. One small bark cloth, one small pot. And they would trade down the bay with their neighbours who made shell necklaces or canoes or provided other things that they needed. And even now, in order not to be fighting over that land and the sea, they still want to trade. And today, the bark cloth is even more important because behind the, the, the villages that the Mycin and their neighbours, who aren't all the same tribe, there are only 3,000 Mycin, behind there, there's a forest. And it's a virgin forest, it's beautiful trees, it's got birds of paradise, it has the biggest butterfly in the world, which is like a huge bird, an extraordinary thing. It's threatened by logging companies. International logging companies are coming in illegally and taking the wood. And the mycin, some of them are tempted to sell because they don't have any medicine. They don't have enough money to, to, to pay their school teacher. So this cloth, this extraordinary cloth, which is so simple, really, they're selling it to tourists and that is how they get the money to not have to sell their forests. And you mentioned your visit to the Mason tribe, and this is something that runs throughout the book. You don't just talk about the history of these fabrics. You go and see them being made and talk to the people who make them. How did that add an extra dimension to your research? What do you think was the benefits of going out and seeing these fabrics and talking to the people who make them? My background is as, first of all, I studied anthropology, but I've been a journalist for a long time. I like talking to people. I mean, I, I like reading books. I do. I can get I can get so absorbed in the British Library that my husband says it's just as well that it closes at whatever time it closes, because otherwise he'd never see me. Um, that was in the good old days when libraries <laughs> were easy to access. So I do like books as well. But really, it's people who hold the stories. And I think with, with cloth in particular, perhaps, I mean, it's very much about making. I mean, we've got obviously the whole industrial history of cloth as well. But one of the sides of cloth is that people make, they sew it, they knit it, they 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 craft it, they weave it. Um, and in the case of bark cloth, they bash it, but they make it. What I've saw as I talk to people in different parts of the world, I, I, I mean, I talked to somebody who, who uses a backstrap loom in Guatemala, very traditional. I talked to weavers in the island of Harris and Lewis, who are making tweed in their back gardens, in sheds in their back gardens. It's kind of like a conversation they're having with the fabric, with the fibre, to make it into something. I, I heard that again and again, that sometimes they make it best when they don't think of anything. But therefore, the the connection is between them and the thing that they're making. So on another level, as well as finding more interesting stories and really having having the the energy that comes from the people that are making, um, I think it sort of reflects 
the subject that I'm talking about, the cloth, to be talking to people because it's very much a conversation. And continuing to think about the people who are making the cloth, making the fabric, how does gender play into it? Is it? There are a lot of women who are making fabric, in part because it's something traditionally that people have made for the home um, to clothe the family, in another way because... Because there's a function, a function, that's a terrible word, a, but there is there is a part of fabric that is for holding us, for, for keeping us, keeping us warm, keeping us, keeping us within the community. And that can be a women's role, that sort of nurturing sense of fabric. But also, also fabric wasn't always very lucrative. So when it wasn't lucrative, you'd find that it was the women doing it. And when it was lucrative, you'd find it was the men. Um, I met men and women who were involved in the in the in the fabric trade and in that i think it's there's a sense of equality there as well everybody's involved where it's not just a women's thing so you mentioned the idea of fabric becoming lucrative and one that is probably one of the most lucrative fabrics in the world is cotton how did people's desire for cotton change the world cotton started off as a luxury good in india um it was one of their their goods that they traded with um, Indonesia, huge demand for Indonesia. Um, and then when it went to Roman Europe, it, I mean, Pliny complained that the desire for cotton was, was bankrupting the Roman coffers. Everybody wanted it. It was really special cotton. It was, um, it was very, very sexy, very sheer. Um, it was like he, he couldn't understand why people were paying so much for something that looked like so little. Cotton is, you can wash it, you can pattern it, you can print it. Other fabrics, you can't do all of those things. You can't wash it so easily. You've got to well, silk You've got to hand wash or dry clean, haven't you? And in history, something that is that convenient that can go... I'm wearing jeans, right? Jeans, working clothes. But also beautiful cottons were some of the finest clothes. So cotton's got this massive range of, of, of abilities and it says a massive range of things about those who are wearing it. And a key part of the story of cotton is colonisation. How was the fabric used by colonisers, but also as a method of resistance, particularly with someone like Gandhi? One of the reasons for this ghastly kind of series of events, which were colonisation, one of the reasons was cotton. There were other, there were other goods, spices, um, all of those things. But cotton was in huge demand and... The Europeans, the British and the French had different rules about how they imported Indian cotton, but they did. They imported raw, imported raw cotton, they, they made it compete, more and more people wanted it and people took over some of the purchasing power of people in India by selling back to India these finished goods. So India's whole industry of making cotton was absolutely desolated. It was, it was, it was, it was ruined by, by political, economic, uncompassionate decisions, I think. Um, 
and Gandhi when he was looking at how India could be nationalised, how it could return to its own rule. He looked at cotton as one of the absolute... It was both symbol and it was point of power in terms of how people... how the weather money was going, because you've got to follow the money. And so Gandhi asked for people to wear khadi, which is homegrown cotton, homespun cotton. Um, and he asked for them to wear it both to signify that they were nationalists, that they wanted the British to be gone, but also to impoverish Lancashire, to impoverish Manchester, to impoverish when those two are impoverished, to impoverish Britain and to mean that the British were willing to talk. I mean, it was it's a funny stuff, Cardi. It's very simple. I mean, quite a lot of women in India said, we, we can't just be wearing this. It's not really, it doesn't really hold together, for example. Um, it's not very beautiful. But also, what happens to our own crafts in India if we're all wearing this homespun? They also had a problem because the whole world had industrialised by now. And there weren't any in the beginning. They couldn't find any of the old um, spinning, wheel, spinning wheels and spinning mechanisms from the old days. Finally, one of the volunteers found several hundred in attics um, and they brought them back and they repaired them and then they made some new ones. But really, the whole ancient technology of spinning in India had gone until it was revitalised as a movement of protest and a, a, a movement of protest and also of solidarity. If you were wearing this, it was a clear show where your politics lay. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But in its early years in France, you could tell who was working at the artificial silk plant because they were the ones who had blue skin. They were the ones who died early. They were the ones whose babies died early. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. So you mentioned that the whole world had industrialised and this plays a really large role in the story of cotton. So it can be made on a much bigger scale. You have the rise of Manchester cotton, which is mass produced. How did this impact on people's lives? How did it change the conditions they were facing? Cotton was one of the first um, reasons to introduce this kind of mass machinery. It's, it did start in Britain and it, it started in a way as a kind of constant loss of balance. So the first machines, the first kind of successful machines, everybody was trying to make machines early, but the first successful machines were by a man called John Kay and his son Robert. And he just looked at how people were, how you needed two weavers in a loom. And um, if you, one would throw the shuttle through to the other who'd throw it back, throw it back. He figured if you could just make a flick, you could do it with one weaver. So you've got the one weaver. So how do you keep the spun cotton to keep up? And once you've got the 
invention of a machine to spin cotton industrially, how do the looms keep up? Because now they need far more. So it was all about sort of balance. And each time a new piece of machinery was brought in, it wasn't always bad. Sometimes it actually improved conditions, but I'm afraid usually it didn't improve conditions because more and more the the production of fabrics involved young children. Um, they were very small. They could go underneath the machines. It was very brutal. Um, there was the machines were open all night, and so were the so were the so were the mills. There was no way of protecting young young women or any or women of any kind of any age from predatory males, and it was happening again and again, completely unreported. And children were working from very early morning to very late in the evening after Waterloo, for example. So when um, many men died, their children were left without any anything to look after, anybody to look after them. And they found themselves sent to the mills as if for their own good. But really, they were never released. They, they would theoretically be released from this, this labour at 18. But if you've got no idea about how old you are, and if other people have got an interest in saying that you are a different age, then, I mean, lives were desolated. And obviously with cotton in particular, we've got a situation of, um, in America, much of the cotton was um, was created, was, was grown on, on plantations with people who were enslaved and the conditions were appalling um, and it lasted for a long time. In fact, one of the, one of the, <laughs> the theories is that in a way the invention of um, a cotton gin, a gin to take the uh, an engine to take the seeds out of cotton, um, that could have perpetuated the condition of slavery in in North America. Um, so it is it is an appalling history, um, but it is also a history of human invention of how we adapt to circumstances, um, of how when an opportunity is seen, whether it's a lucrative one or one to clothe a nation, uh, decisions are made that put that put other things out of balance and other things in balance. So, so far we've talked about quite luxurious fabrics. We've had high-class cotton, but there's one fabric in the book which isn't quite as luxurious, and that is sackcloth. Why was sackcloth associated with being penitent? I think that one of the reasons that I decided to write a chapter about sackcloth was because of something that I heard when I went to Shepton Mallet Prison, which is um, a prison It was closed a few years ago and is open for tours, extraordinary tours. Um, we were shown around by two former prison guards and they brought us, they brought us to all the cells, but they also brought us to the old prison yard that in recent times was used for basketball and a little bit of gardening. But in the Victorian period and before, and in the Georgian period, it was used as the exercise yard. It's not huge. Um, it doesn't feel much larger than a basketball court. And the prisoners, their one exercise was to walk around it. And they walked around uh, Widdershins, anti-clockwise, in order to to symbolise how they needed to reverse time. But they also 
walked around it with sackcloth on their heads. The ostensible reason was that they didn't see the governor and his family, whose um, <laughs> whose windows rather inconveniently looked out onto that, that yard. Um, but the real reason was, in a way, to symbolise the fact that they've done something wrong and that the cloth itself represents how they must be sorry. Sack is actually an old term in the Middle East for um, goat hair. And originally, although our sacking, I think we're all we're all probably going to think about, well, we'll probably think about polypropylene, actually. But even if we think about traditional sacking, we're thinking about jute and hemp. But in the very old times when sackcloth was something that you wore um, beneath your clothes to show sadness, it was always made of goat's hair. It was really prickly and it was really rough. It was um it was it was used for for tents in in the in the Bible times. It was used also for fishermen would wear these kind of cloaks made of sack because it was actually quite oily. And I think when things are hurting, there is a sense that this is the wearing of something uncomfortable and and almost scarring to the body. That's a very simple pain. And I think f- traditionally, it's almost much more simple to think about that pain than to think about the more complex pains that are that are connected to grief and connected to feeling awful about things. Um, and then you've got the chance to distract yourself with this scratch that can cause blood. Um, I've never, I've never actually worn it, but I have read extraordinary accounts of how saints wore this, this this fabric um, and in a way it was it was seen as a symbol as a sign that they were saints if you found that they had sackcloth underneath them so um, Thomas Beckett of Canterbury um, he was killed by four knights as we all know um, believing that they were under orders of the king but it was when they knights raced up to his quarters, his archbishop's quarters in Canterbury, and they saw in a trunk that they opened, hoping that it would contain treasure, and they found hair shirts. That was the point, according to the legends, that they realised that they had made a very terrible mistake and killed a holy man. Moving our focus now to China and the next fabric I want to talk to you about is silk. And there's this really unique origin story in China for silk. Can you tell it to the listeners? I will. It's it's a terrible story. So listeners, be warned. It's obviously a very ancient story as well. And the story is that there was a family living remotely in the hills and they had a horse who was a lovely horse and one day the father was sent off to fight with the king and he disappeared off and he didn't return and after the, after a year the family were like where is he and after a second year the daughter was getting very worried and the horse and this is a very old story so the horse can speak the horse said i will go and find your father I will bring him back on my back and I will go and get him. And I do have a fee. And the girl said, anything. And the horse said, I want to marry you. 
And the girl thought, well, he's a quite handsome horse and he's been, a ni- he's been a nice horse and he's going to rescue my father. So she says yes. So the off the horse goes and he's probably a constellation horse. He's probably Pegasus or something. He disappears off and after a certain time he comes back with the father who's very delighted to be back until he finds out what his daughter has promised the horse. And he is disgusted. So he kills the horse, chops off its head, The horse, magic horse, chases the girl, wraps the skin around the girl, and she disappears. The father goes looking for her and the skinned, decapitated horse, and she can't can't find her, can't find her, and then he sees on a tree a creature that looks like a horse but has no skin and he realized it's his daughter and she's been turned into a silk cocoon and if you look at silkworms they have noses they look actually really sweet the silkworms i think they do anyway they they, they're quite fat and they've got noses that look just like horses heads Um, and when they wind themselves up into um, the cocoons that will be boiled this is another tough bit of the story, but the, the cocoons are boiled and then people extract the silk and it just comes as a very, very thin skein off those cocoons. Um, so when they come, they are like the girl. She's, she's um, now a goddess. She's called the horsehead goddess or the silk goddess. And... Today, when people, when silk farmers have their annual celebration, they will leave offerings to the silk goddess um, because of what she sacrificed when the horse was killed. And we've talked a lot about um, natural fabric so far in the podcast, but part of your book deals with artificial fabrics, and one of those is called artificial silk. How is artificial silk made and how dangerous is that? Silk, so extraordinarily important. So what if, and this is what the scientist Robert Hooke asked himself in the 17th century, what if we as humans could replicate the chemical process that the silkworm is doing in its cocoon and we could make our own kind of silk. That was a question that was asked and asked and asked. Um, And finally, they found a way of doing it. And it was very much modelled on how silkworms do it. So silkworms have little, effectively, spinnerets and the people who invented what was originally called artificial silk, and now we know better as viscose, terrible name, I think, was to replicate that using acids. So you push you push stuff that comes from organic structures, and that could be um, from the uh, paper mulberry leaf, or it could be from wood, or it could be from bamboo. And somehow you push it through artificial spinnerets into effectively an acid bath or equivalent, and it turns into a little very fine 
string fine filament which can be used for artificial silk which sounds great um in time in early times and sometimes today the process can be deeply problematic in terms of um in terms of chemicals um there are different kinds of viscose that use better chemicals and also use a closed process whereby the important thing is the acid doesn't escape but in its early years in france you could tell who was working at the artificial silk plant because they were the ones who had blue skin they were the ones who died early they were the ones whose babies died early oh, it's not the case anymore but that is um, one of the sort of the the horrendous things about that history and it's only not the case where people are aware of the responsibility of choosing what kind of fabrics that you buy and making sure that the supply chain of them is really clear. Mm. And thinking about sustainability, because of course there's not just viscose, there's a wide range of artificial fabrics available today, and one of which is, it's a kind of plastic, isn't it, that's replaced um, jute in, in sackcloth and bags. How, what impact does that have on the environment? Do these fabrics go back into the earth or do they live forever and ever and ever? <laughs> well, viscose, actually, it comes uh, it comes from organic material. It can be made from lots of different things, you know, bamboo and eucalyptus and all of those things. So if it's made of sustainable fabric, then it can, like cotton, go back into the earth. But most of the fabric that is bought today is... Um, made from a kind of plastic. It's 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 brought from oil. That's polyester, nylon, um, and sacking material. The main problem is disposing of these fabrics, um, and another problem is the making of them. Is just we're making far more than even six billion people on this world need, um, and. One of the solutions, perhaps, for all of these things, all of these things that are not sustainable, is to work out from the beginning how we get rid of them and how 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 their end of their life is framed. Um, it's an extraordinarily complex procedure, and certainly at the COP, most recently in Glasgow, plastic fabric, nylon fabric, polyester fabric, and all the other fabrics. It's the making of them is extremely expensive for the earth and the disposing of them is extremely expensive for the earth and we really need to get our act together. That was Victoria Finley. Her book, Fabric, The Hidden History of the Material World, is published by Profile Books and is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.